The scripture reading today comes from Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 3 and 13 through 16. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You can be seated. Well, good morning again, and welcome to New Life Fremont. My name is Kevin, and I'm the pastor here, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet. Today, we are beginning a new sermon series called By Faith. And what we're going to be doing is tracing our way through Hebrews chapter 11. Sometimes this chapter is called the Hall of Faith, because in Hebrews 11, the author names many Old Testament saints and highlights how they lived by faith. By faith, Abel did this. By faith, Noah did this. By faith, Rahab did this. And so starting today and going all the way until Christmas, we're going to be spending each week looking at one of the people mentioned in Hebrews 11. You could almost think of this as like one gigantic Advent sermon series, tracing our way through Old Testament history until finally Jesus arrives. Christmas. But before we look at any one person, Today, what we're going to do is talk about faith more generally. The overarching theme of the entire chapter, and therefore the entire series, is going to be faith. So it's worth spending this first week looking at the topic more broadly. And as we do so, we will have three points. Faith present, faith past, and faith future. Present, past, future. And so let's begin with our first point, faith present. How should we think about faith today? What is the nature of faith in our present cultural moment? There's an article in The Onion, which if you're not familiar with The Onion, it's an online satirical newspaper. The articles are fake, but they attempt to be funny or satirical. Uh, But there's an Onion article that I think, first of all, is hilarious, but also gives tremendous insight into how the broader secular culture views the concept of faith. And here's the headline of that article. Local church full of brainwashed idiots feeds the town's poor every week. The article goes on to say, sources confirm today that the brainwashed morons at First Baptist Assembly of Christ, all of whom blindly accept whatever simplistic fairy tales are fed to them, volunteer each Wednesday night to provide meals to impoverished members of the community. Quote, Unfortunately, there are a lot of people in town who have fallen on hard times and are unable to afford to put food on the table, so we try to help out as best we can, said 48-year-old Carrie Bellamy, one of the mindless sheep who adheres to a backward ideology and is incapable of thinking for herself. The article concludes, As of press time, the brainless, unthinking lemmings had donated winter clothing 
they no longer wore to several needy families and still hadn't opened their eyes to reality. Now, the target of that article, in my opinion, isn't actually Christians, as it keeps highlighting the good that many Christians really do, feeding and clothing those in need. The target of that article is actually people who think all those things about Christians, that we are brainwashed, brainless, mindless, and unthinking, that we haven't opened our eyes to reality, that we blindly accept whatever simplistic fairy tales are fed to us. Because to many in the broader culture, that's what faith is, blindly accepting things to be true with no evidence or maybe even against evidence. But is that what faith is? For us, for Christians, is that what our faith is, blindly accepting things to be true? Or is there more to it than that? Well, in our passage, in verse 1, the author defines faith like this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, at first glance, you might think that that definition doesn't really say more than what the culture thinks faith is, blind acceptance, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But let's slow down for a moment. That word assurance is a perfectly fine translation, but the word has a bit more depth to it than you might initially think. You might read assurance and think it's self-assurance an assurance that comes from within us rather than from outside of us. But that's not exactly right. It is an assurance, but it's not self-assurance. The word could maybe better be translated firm foundation, like what a building or house rests on. Faith rests on the firm foundation of things hoped for. And so faith isn't based on nothing. It's not based on self-assurance. It's an assurance that comes from outside of ourselves, and it's based on something firm. Or consider the phrase, the conviction of things not seen. Again, that might seem like it's based on nothing, but think about the word conviction. We use that word in similar sorts of ways. For example, to be convicted of something in the court of law, there has to be enough evidence to persuade the jury. Or consider personal convictions. When we have personal convictions, they are based on deep consideration and the weighing of evidence. And so again, a conviction is not blind. It's not based on nothing. It's based on evidence. Now, I don't want to press this too far. Obviously, the nature of faith is that there is some gap. Like there still is something that we don't have yet. There's still something we're waiting for. There's still something we don't see yet. Like if you were right now to say, I have faith that Pastor Kevin will wear khaki pants on Sunday. That would not be faith because everyone can see that I am already, in fact, wearing khaki pants. It takes no faith to believe that because it's right in front of you. And so faith still does require something hoped for. It still requires something not seen yet. But the things hoped for that we are assured of, the things not seen yet that we have a conviction about, are based on something. They're not blindly accepted. Like if I told you yesterday that I would wear khakis today, you could have had assurance and conviction of that. You could have had faith in that, depending on my trustworthiness and how much you trusted me. 
You could have gone to bed last night, woken up this morning, having faith that you would see me in khaki pants today. You wouldn't have seen it yet, but you would have reason to believe it. I told you that I would. But on the other hand, if I told you yesterday that I would wear khakis today, and then you went on to say, I have faith that Pastor Kevin will wear a pink tutu at church tomorrow, that would be blind faith. It would be faith in that you would not have seen whether that was true or not yet. You'd have to wait until today, but it would be blind because you would have no reason to believe that. I've never said I would wear a pink tutu. I've never worn a pink tutu. You've never seen me wear a pink tutu, except maybe right now in your mind. So you would have no reason to have faith that I would. Now, I think that maybe conspiracy theories are worth a mention here. A conspiracy theory is an example of blind faith. And unfortunately, there can be a tendency for Christians to be tricked by conspiracy theories. I think it flows from a misunderstanding of what faith is. And so essentially what a conspiracy theory is, is practicing blind faith. So for example, there are people who believe that in the highest levels of the U.S. government, there is an organized trafficking ring being run by various powerful politicians and officials, which if it were true, would be absolutely awful and appalling and would absolutely need to be brought to justice. But that's sort of the trick of it, because when people hear that, they think, well, how could anyone not care about this? The only problem is that there's no evidence. There are no witnesses saying that it's actually happening. And so to believe it is happening without any evidence is to practice blind faith. There's no firm foundation. There's no evidence upon which to have that conviction. Therefore, it's a conspiracy theory. It's blind faith. And so again, our evaluation of faith really all comes down to what our faith is in. Whether our faith is in something firm, whether our faith is in something or someone trustworthy. And here's the thing. Absolutely everyone lives by faith. Do you realize that? Everyone lives by faith. Every day, believer and unbeliever alike, religious or secular, everyone lives by faith. The difference between our views is not whether it's by faith or not. The difference is between what we place our faith in and whether the foundation of our faith is firm, whether the object of our faith is trustworthy. Here's what I mean. Often in our secular culture, people will pit science and faith against one another. You might think or know people who say they will only believe something if there is scientific evidence or proof of it. But even that statement is self-defeating and requires faith to believe. You can't scientifically prove that you should only believe things that there is scientific evidence or proof for. That statement is based on assumptions made by faith and I think flows from a misunderstanding of the limitations of science. Because again, the reality is that we all, every day, have to make decisions based on faith. Most of you, I would guess, drove here or were driven here in a car many of which needed gas to run, although fewer and fewer nowadays. But when you filled up your car with gas or when you got into the car, did you check to make sure that it was in fact gasoline that was in your car and that it hadn't been switched for something that would explode when you turned it on? Of course not, because you have faith that it's fine because every other time you filled up with gas, it's been fine. 
And so you proceeded by faith. You didn't require proof. But also, you likely would not know how to check the chemical makeup of what was going into your car, even if you wanted to. So what do you do instead? You live by faith. You trust that it's going to be fine because it's always been fine. And you have faith in the expertise of the gas companies and government regulators. You live by faith. Or we can get even more meta about this. Recently, there have been previews for the fourth Matrix movie. But in the first Matrix, Neo, Keanu Reeves' character, thinks that reality is how he perceives it. He works this office job and has his life. But then he comes to learn that what he thinks is reality is, in fact, not reality. The truth is that the real him is in a vat, and his brain is plugged into a computer, making him think that he's living that life when, in fact, machines are harvesting his energy. And so my question for you is, how do you know that this is our reality? Can you prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that this isn't a simulation and that the real you isn't somewhere in a vat with your brain plugged into a computer making you think that this is reality? Of course you can't. And now I know that's pretty sci-fi, but my point is that even even to just take life seriously requires faith. You have to believe that this is reality. You have to, by faith, believe that reality is how you perceive it. You can't prove that. You just have to live by faith. Without faith, life would actually be unlivable. And so again, we all live by faith. And that faith is based on something. And so the question is not whether we live by faith or not. The question is what our faith is in or who our faith is in. For the Christian, then, Faith is assurance and conviction based on God, based on God's trustworthiness, based on God's promises. God is the firm foundation of things hoped for. God gives us reason for conviction of things not seen. The degree to which we experience assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen is correlated to the degree to which we view God as trustworthy. In the context of the Christian religion, then, faith is trusting God. And what has he given us as evidence or reason to trust him or to see him as trustworthy? Well, many things. He's given us his word. We have the scriptures. He's told us what he's like. He's told us what he's done. And we can choose whether to believe him or not. He's also given us creation, existence itself. Verse 3 of our passage says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Creation and existence themselves are reasons to trust God. And I won't get into the philosophical details, but why is there something rather than nothing is actually a philosophical problem. Why does anything exist? That's a question that needs an answer, and it's reason to believe that there is a God. And our God has told us that he did, in fact, create everything. And he didn't use pre-existing material because nothing pre-exists God. Everything was created by him. But not only do we have God's creation and his word as evidence, we have his son. We have Jesus. God entered history. And we have evidence of that. All historians agree that Jesus was a real historical person. 
They may disagree on his significance, but they all agree that he really lived. And the changes to the course of history since Jesus lived are things that everyone has to deal with. You have to explain history since Jesus somehow. The Bible teaches that while Jesus was on earth, he did miraculous things. He taught people. He pronounced his coming kingdom. He died. He rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven. That either happened or it didn't, but people alive at the time say they saw him die, resurrect, and ascend, and they proclaimed it. And many of them were even killed for proclaiming it. Why would so many people continue proclaiming it if they knew it was a lie? Doesn't the truth of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension make more sense? And since then, Because of the witnesses' proclamations, the church has grown for over 2,000 years from a small group of disciples in the Middle East to a worldwide religion. Would that really have happened if Jesus had not risen from the dead? Interestingly, some who do not believe Jesus resurrected and ascended have tried to make sense of the growth of Christianity since his day by saying that what must have happened was a mass hallucination. His followers really believed that they saw him, but it was a hallucination that hundreds of people had at the same time. And I get how that seems to solve the problem, but do you see the leap of faith you have to make to believe that? A mass hallucination of the same thing at the same time by hundreds of people. Is that not a significantly greater leap of faith than the simpler explanation that Jesus really died, resurrected, and ascended. And so all that to say, faith for the Christian is far from blind acceptance. Faith is based on a firm foundation, a conviction that God is trustworthy, that God has given us the best and truest interpretation of creation, history, and scripture, that God has given us his son, Jesus Christ. And so that is faith present. But let's move on now to our second point, faith past. Verse 2 of our passage says, For by it, that is by faith, for by it the people of old received their commendation. They received their commendation. This is interesting because the people in the Old Testament failed often. Even the best of them had massive failures. David with Bathsheba, Abraham with Hagar, just to name a few. But despite the big mess-ups of the Old Testament characters, they are still commended here. The entire chapter of Hebrews 11 is commending many of the Old Testament saints. Their examples of faith are on permanent record for us, and it's a positive portrayal. Hebrews 11 is filled with imperfect Old Testament people. Noah, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelite, the judges, all of them are commended here, even though they had points of failure. And that should be a comfort for us. You don't have to be perfect to still be commended for your faith. The Old Testament people of faith are commended for living by faith, not for their perfection. And it was their faith in the midst of their failures that led them back to God in repentance. David wrote wrote Psalm 51 after his great sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Abraham was later willing to sacrifice Isaac and trust God after having not trusted him with Hagar and Ishmael. You don't have to be perfect to be commended. You just have to have faith. By faith, the people of old received their commendation. 
Now, another question that comes up when thinking about the faith of the saints of old is how were they saved? How were people in the Old Testament saved? After all, Jesus had not come yet for them to place their faith in him. And so how were they saved? Well, before I get to that question, we should probably answer another first. What is saving faith to begin with? How is anyone saved? Now, what I've been describing so far in this sermon is what we might describe as living by faith, the life of faith. Think Galatians 2.20. Paul says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. It's this ongoing faith that affects our day-to-day and everything we do. It leads us to obedience. When we are in sin, it leads us to repentance. And this life of faith is very much in line with the stories that Hebrews 11 references from the Old Testament. But there is another type of faith described in Scripture too, and it's known as saving faith. And obviously these faiths are related. You don't get to living by faith. You don't get to the life of faith without first having saving faith. The life of faith derives from saving faith. But what is saving faith? Well, Ephesians 2.8 puts it like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. And so saving faith is a grace where we receive and rest upon Jesus alone for salvation. And you can break down saving faith into three components, knowledge, belief, and trust. To have saving faith, you have to know what the gospel message is, that Christ died to save sinners. You have to know it, but not only do you have to know that's what the gospel message claims, you have to believe it's true. You could know that that's the gospel, what the gospel says, but not believe that it's true. Saving faith requires believing it's true, but it actually goes even one step beyond believing it's true. Because you see, scripture teaches that the devil and demons believe true things about God, but they hate him for it. They do not trust him. They set themselves against him. And so this is where trust comes in. Saving faith requires knowing what the gospel message is, believing that it's true, and then finally trusting in it, receiving it, resting upon it, aligning yourself with Christ. Now, for those of us born in the Christian faith, we may not really be able to trace this to a precise moment. We've just always known and believed and trusted Jesus was our Savior. And one day, maybe you sort of came to a self-awareness that you had saving faith. Someone, maybe your parents or your pastor, asked you, do you trust in Jesus? And you genuinely could say, yes, I do. I can't remember not trusting in Jesus. For others of us, there may have been a more concrete moment where we went from knowing we definitely did not trust in Jesus to suddenly realizing we did trust in Jesus and we received him as our savior and were baptized and began participating in communion. Whatever your story is, those are both examples of saving faith. Saving faith is simply knowing, believing, and trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life as he is offered to everyone in the gospel. Now, if you're here today and you do not believe Uh, if you do not have saving faith. Let me first say, in light of what I was saying in the first point, 
I cannot prove that the Christian faith is true to you beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not possible. It is a faith. It will require faith to believe. And so I can't prove it to you. But I, of course, do think that there is great reason to believe it's true and to place your faith in Christ. And let me ask you to consider a few questions. If your faith is not in Christ, what is your faith in? And is it a firm foundation? What are you resting upon for purpose, meaning, significance, and ultimately salvation of some sort? And is it giving you those things? Do you have good reason to believe it will give you those things? Do you apply the same scrutiny to your own faith beliefs that you apply to the faith beliefs of Christianity? Do you doubt your doubts? After all, doubts are really just a rewording of things we believe by faith. If you're at all interested in talking more, I would love nothing more than to explore faith, worldviews, doubt, whatever with you. If you're not ready to talk, I also recommend two books. One more recent is Making Sense of God by Tim Keller. He does a great job of exploring our presuppositions when we think about belief and doubt. And then an older book, but a classic, is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And even if you're not, even if you are a believer, those would be great books to read. But now back to the original question, how were the Old Testament saints saved? They were saved by faith and ultimately by Jesus. The difference is just that they did not have the full revelation of Jesus's work that we do. But that does not mean that they were any less saved by Jesus's death or that in, they were saved in any less. This does not mean that they were any less saved by Jesus's death or that it was any less through faith, through knowing, believing, and trusting in the Lord the saints of old were saved. And a simple and quick verse that highlights this in the Old Testament is Genesis fifteen six. It says, And Abraham believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. He trusted God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. God saved him. Paul in the New Testament, after Jesus resurrected and ascended, says that the true descendants of Abraham are not his biological descendants, they are his spiritual descendants, those who have faith. Because just like we are saved through faith, Abraham and every other Old, New Testament, Old Testament saint was saved by faith. Now it is worth noting that they did have less to go on than we do, which makes their faith all the more impressive. And it should strengthen our faith because we have more of God's revelation to base our faith in. What the Old Testament saints saw dimly, that God would save his people through sending his Messiah, we see in the light of day. Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, came to earth, took on flesh, lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice to fulfill the Old Testament sacrifices, rose from the dead and ascended up to heaven. The Old Testament saints had to look forward to that. We get to look back at it. They died anticipating and trusting that it would happen. We live knowing and believing that it happened already. And so if anything, today, we have more reason, more assurance, more conviction to live by faith. But that's not the end of the story. There is something we also have to look forward to in faith. 
just like the Old Testament saints had to look forward in faith. And that takes us to our final point, faith future. In our passage, in verses 13 through 16, the author describes the faith of the Old Testament saints like this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They desire a better country, a heavenly one, and God has prepared for them a city. You see, the saints of old and Christians today, while we may relate to the resurrection of Jesus from different sides of history, we all look forward to the better country, the heavenly one, the city that God is preparing from the same side of history. The eschaton, paradise, heaven, the new creation, that's in everyone's future. The author of Hebrews is pointing out that the Old Testament saints lived as strangers and exiles on earth. They were seeking a homeland, but they never truly found it here, not on this earth. And so they kept pressing on in faith. They had the opportunity to return to their earthly homelands, but they didn't. They kept pressing on in faith, believing God had a home for them. And eventually, they died in faith, never shaking off their stranger and exile status on the earth. They died in faith, not having received the promised homeland, but seeing it and greeting it from afar. And we are called to the same thing because we are in the same situation. Remember the first Peter sermon series? We also are exiles on the earth. This fallen world is not how it's supposed to be. And so we'll never quite be at home here. We have to keep looking forward to our heavenly home, which we'll arrive at when Jesus returns. Now, While for the Old Testament saints, the temptation was always to return back to some past earthly homeland, Abraham to return to Ur, Moses and the Israelites back to Egypt, we are often tempted to put our hope in some sort of future home. And this is especially true in Silicon Valley, where we have amazing tech and lots of money. And so instead of putting our hope in our heavenly home, we can be tempted to put our hope in some sort of earthly home in the future, some sort of earthly home brought about by technology and money. And that's a problem. Here's why. In his book, Disappearing Church, Mark Sayers, a pastor from Australia, does some critical analysis on the 2013 film, Her. I would definitely use discretion before deciding to watch this film, but I think his critical analysis of it is helpful. In the movie, Joaquin Phoenix plays Theodore, the main character, and he lives in a near-future Los Angeles where technology has made pretty much everything amazing. It's so high-tech, in fact, that after his wife leaves him, Theodore develops a romantic relationship with the operating system on his phone. It's an artificial intelligence program like Siri or Alexa, uh, but she's named Samantha, and she's voiced by Scarlett Johansson. And as he dives deeper and deeper into this romantic relationship with Samantha, his actual life begins to fall apart. He constantly turns to this artificial relationship instead of dealing with the pain and emotion of his real life in healthy ways. 
He's even set up on a blind date with a lovely woman, and they both really like each other. But when the woman tries to move the relationship towards something more formal and exclusive, Theodore withdraws from her. He desires connection and companionship, but he can't overcome his desire for maximum freedom and autonomy. Only his relationship with Samantha can give him that, if you can even call it a relationship. And it's not just Theodore. You know, later on in the movie, he is walking through the streets of Los Angeles, and in the crowd behind him, not a single person is talking to anyone else. They're all just staring at their phones. There's absolutely zero human interaction. And what Sayers points out is that her is actually an apocalypse film, except it's a subtle apocalypse. Typically, in apocalyptic films, there is a comet that hits the Earth, or nuclear war, or a Godzilla-like character. And the final shot of the movie will have the main characters overlooking some destroyed cityscape as they are preparing to completely start over their lives. But in her, in the final shot of the movie, Theodore is up on top of a tall building, and it's just before sunrise. He's looking out over Los Angeles, the City's skyscrapers are lit up, the sky is beginning to change colors, and it looks absolutely beautiful. I mean, from a cinematography perspective, it's an amazing shot. And Sears points out that in her, it's not the city that is destroyed in the apocalypse, it's the protagonist. All the buildings are still standing and they look breathtaking, but Theodore's internal life has been destroyed. If we put our faith and hope in some future utopia on Earth brought about by human ingenuity, technology, government, nonprofits, whatever, there may not be an apocalypse out there, but there will be an apocalypse in here. If we live for the next piece of hot technology, the iPhone 13, the next vacation with the perfect Instagram shots, the next promotion, the next job, the next city, it may never come. But even if it does, it won't give you that true home and belonging you're after. Only faith in the future that Jesus is bringing can do that. Jesus' interaction with history is not over yet. He was born, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he ascended up to heaven. That's all in the past. Right now, he is in heaven. But in the future, he will return. We're still waiting for his second coming. Revelation 21 describes that day like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, and a loud voice said, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Mourning shall be no more. Crying shall be no more. Pain shall be no more. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. A new earth, a new heaven, a new city, a new Jerusalem, a new home. No more pain, no more suffering, no more tears, no more death. We will be able to kick off our shoes, kick back and relax because we will finally be home. That's our future. Jesus is bringing us home. God has made good on every promise he's made so far. So let's live by faith that he'll also make good on his promise of a future home with him in heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and thank you 
that you are a God who keeps his promises, that you are a firm foundation, that you are trustworthy. We admit, Father, that we are prone to moments of faithlessness, to doubt, to struggling to believe you. We pray, Lord, that you would turn our attention to all you have done for us through your son, Jesus Christ. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be filled and live more and more by faith in you. We pray this all in your son's name, Lord. Amen.